We find ourselves here in Acts 21. We are at the tail end of Paul's third missionary journey. Now, all of us, since we were born, are not prone to walk into pain. We try to avoid pain. You put your hand on the stove, you are going to remove your hand quickly if, you know, the stove is hot. You get a splinter, you're immediately going to remove your hand from that piece of wood. You break a bone in your body, you're going to go to the hospital and try to find some relief, get that taken care of. All humans are self-interested in avoiding pain, and there would be something wrong with you if you were not. Nothing wrong with that. There's actually a disease that causes the loss of sensory function and the inability to feel pain in our tissue. And you know what that's called? That's right. It is leprosy. Leprosy itself is not what causes disfigurement in people. Disfigurement happens because of the inability to feel pain from an injury or some other source of tissue damage. So for instance, you might get a blister on your foot. Now, normal people that don't have leprosy would feel the blister. You'd put a Band-Aid on it or put a special shoe or, or sock on it. You would take care of it or, you know, put some kind of salve or whatever to take care of the blister. But for a person with leprosy, they don't know they have a blister. The blister continues to fester the, and the blister can get infected. And then you've got a serious issue. And that's what causes for some people to have you know, amputation. Uh, so infection is a serious thing that you have to deal with. Pain can be an important tool for us in letting us know that something has to be addressed. There's a book written about this topic uh, by Philip Yancey and Paul Brand. Yancey happens to be one of my favorite Christian authors. And Dr. Paul Brand dealt with this when he was a missionary in, uh, I believe it was India, and they've also written an article addressing this issue. And in that article, they talked about Matthew 11, uh, where Jesus was, Jesus was addressing the idea of there being a yoke that was put upon us. It reads this way. It said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. This is Matthew 11, 28 and 29. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Now, it seems paradoxical to have talk of, you know, labor and rest, and then Jesus' answer is, put a yoke upon us? That doesn't sound like rest to me, all right? That sounds almost contradictory. Well, this is the take that Brand and Yancey have on this. Uh, this is kind of an extended passage, but I think it's worth worth me reading. It says this, if I put a flat uncarved piece of wood on an ox's neck and use it to pull a cart, very quickly pressure sores will break out on that animal's neck and he will be useless. A good yoke must be formed to the shape of an ox's neck. It should cover a large area of skin to distribute the stresses widely. It should almost be smooth, rounded, and polished with no sharp edges so that no one point will endure unduly high stress. If I succeed in my workshop, the yoke I make will fit snugly around the ox's neck and cause him no discomfort. 
He can haul heavy loads every day for years and his skin will remain perfectly healthy with no pressure sores. And now I think I understand the strange juxtaposition of phrases in Matthew 11. Jesus offers each of us a well-fitted yoke of custom design. He's not, he does not call us to the kind of rest that means inactivity or laziness that would lead to spiritual atrophy. Instead, he promises a burden designed to fit my frame, my individual needs, strengths, and capabilities. I come to him weary and heavy laden. He removes those crushing burdens that would destroy any human being and replaces them with a yoke of appropriate stress designed specifically for me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he says, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, unquote. Is it possible that sickness, poverty, persecution, any other trial is a loving, personal approach of God, you know, personally designed for us, to help us carry a burden so that our souls can find rest and be restored and strengthened. Now that's a difficult case to make when you are dealing with acute pain. My wife saw her father waste away from lung cancer and the agony that the family bore as they just saw him at home uh, and as he lost so much weight, and as he was in agony, that hardly seems light and easy in the moment. But yet the emptiness that his death caused in that family was one of the things that precipitated Janet coming to Christ in her early 20s and seeing her mother come to Christ in her 60s. By the way, I just had a man come up to me this morning and said he trusted Christ uh, just a couple weeks ago at 73 years old. So it happens. Pretty cool. Could we not say in Janet's case and her mother's case that God was gentle? And by the way, it wasn't just Janet and her mother. Her sister came to Christ as well and her sister's husband. But could we not say that God was gentle in reaching out to this family to save them from their sin and eternal punishment? That God knew what he was doing? Now, I don't want to get too far afield with this because you know, we could get into a whole sermon about the purpose of pain and, and sickness. But this is no news to you that we have those within Christendom that think that all sickness and poverty has been defeated or dealt with when Christ died on the cross and he defeated you know, the curse of sin. Now, I certainly take issue with that uh, perspective from a biblical standpoint, specifically that health and wealth are a right that we have to claim just because of our position in Christ. What seems especially damaging to me is limiting God to either heal or give me money or blame ourselves for some lack by not attaining it. I want to suggest that there's a third way. 
The idea that God can use those things in our life and it's still at work. I mean, the idea that God cannot take his yoke and use it in our lives with whatever he wants to use and whatever methodology he, you know, he has in his hands. To say that he can't do that, that just seems incongruent to me. Think of Job. Here was Job who had seasons of bad health, very sick. He had seasons of poverty. And yet it was Job who wrote this. He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So this discussion, I think, is kind of what surrounds Acts 21, verses 1 through 14. So let's stand as we take a look at our passage this morning. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went abroad and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemas, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and delivers him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it to the left, we sailed to Syria, landed at Tyre, and for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Luke is extremely detailed in describing what is taking place in the different cities, what's going on with Paul and his fellow travelers. We shouldn't be surprised at this since Luke was a doctor. Usually it helps when doctors are very detailed, right? But these are also places and events that are rooted 
in historical authenticity. And I love that about the Bible. Secondly, the places are a mix of differing people and cultures, Jew and Gentile, demonstrating the power of the gospel with varying cultures. Kaz was a significant Jewish population uh, that lived there. Rhodes, the capital on the north side of the island of Rhodes, was famous uh, for in the early Greek period, possessed one of the seven wonders of the world of the 90-foot statue of Colossus. Uh, Patara, located in modern Turkey, had a huge temple of Apollos, and it was a part of the Roman Lycian League or, or province. Cyprus had a flourishing church going on there and on that island. Tyre was captured by Alexander the Great some two or 300 years before this time, and it was a heathen city, uh, but it had a bustling uh, business environment uh, with its ports. Thirdly, I think the other thing that we can gain from all these details is it shows Paul's intent to go to Jerusalem. If you were to, to follow these cities and this route, you would see it going uh, southeast on the map towards Jerusalem. Paul was interested in delivering a financial gift that he'd been gathering from these different cities to give to the believers at Jerusalem because there was a famine there that uh, affected them and they were in dire need. Paul hoped that this gift would be a sign of the unity of the gospel as he's gathering money from different peoples to give to the Jewish believers there in Jerusalem. In fact, he would comment on this in the book of Romans when he said, for Macedonia and Achaia had been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So, when the Gentiles give to the church at Jerusalem, number one, it demonstrates their appreciation for the Jewish heritage of Christianity, but two, it shows how God is breaking down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentiles. So our, our generosity says something about how serious we are about the gospel and its implications, just like uh, last month when you gave so generously to the Syrian refugees, and we bought that ultrasound machine. God was using that to communicate to a group of people that God loves them. It's an important message. Verse 4 says, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there had ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all with the wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. Kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Notice the plural pronoun, we, being used. Luke, the author of Acts, is inserting himself in this narrative, he was in the group that traveled with Paul. And this group looked for believers in every town that they were in. And here it says that they stayed a week. You know what we find is that the person who's in the body of Christ has friends all over the world. I've been to several different countries and I find this is that when dealing with the church, People can be so loving. I remember being struck by 
when I was in Russia and speaking at a particular church, even though I couldn't speak the language, we had a, of course, had an interpreter, but people were so gracious. And you felt this, this connection that went beyond, you know, being a blood relative, but being spiritual relatives that was, that was deep and very, very real. The gospel unites us and we have camaraderie with other believers around the world. The rest of verse 4 presents, I think, a problem, at least on the surface, but it's, I think, solved if we'll take a look a little deeper into the language. When Luke writes, through the Spirit, that this was communicated not to go to Jerusalem, what is he saying? Is he meaning that the Spirit was telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, or was it something else? You're saying, well, what's the big deal? Well, in the previous chapter, in Acts 20, verse 22, Paul says the Spirit was telling him to go to Jerusalem. So was the Spirit saying one thing in chapter 20 and another thing in chapter 21, at least on the surface, appears like a contradiction? Well, there are various words used for through, various Greek words that can be used. For instance, one is the Greek word hupo, that indicates a direct agency. So for instance, if hupo was used, through the Spirit would mean that the Spirit explicitly was telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. There's another word that does not mean um, by direct result, but it means as a consequence of. That's the word dia, and that's the word that is used here in our text. So it would read more like this as a consequence of what the Spirit said, these disciples told Paul not to go. The idea is that the Spirit is saying there's going to be trouble in Jerusalem. And so Paul's friends took this to mean that he should not go to Jerusalem, and that's what they told him. Don't go to Jerusalem. With this understanding of how this Greek word is actually being used, perhaps the Holy Spirit was actually just warning Paul of what was up ahead, but was not saying, don't go. God was reiterating for Paul that persecution awaited him. And again, it was not the first time he told him this. And you might recall the life of Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus was headed for Jerusalem, set his face towards the holy city. He knew what was up ahead, but he was willing to oblige the will of God and to suffer on a cross. And here, likewise, Paul knows what is up ahead. A chapter earlier we read, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there in terms of all the details, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions will await me. Everywhere I go, there's trouble. The gospel is being churned in the hearts of people, and these religious leaders do not like it, and they want to see me dead. Verses 5 and 6 give a very heartwarming description of what happened next. The entire assembly of believers in the city, we don't know how many, but it's probably a decent-sized group, including entire families, men, women, children, 
follow Paul to the outside of the city to the beach that is near where he was uh, boarding the next ship. So imagine the scene, Paul being among them, and they're kneeling down in the sand, asking God to protect Paul. I'm sure there were many tears. I'm sure there was much affection that was shown as they were saying their final goodbyes. And everyone was fully aware of what Paul was going to face in Jerusalem. But they were also aware that prayer provides the best fortification for times of suffering. You know, this week I came to the office early and there were a few cars in the parking lot. I went and there was three men praying in a room. They motioned for me to come in. They said, you know, we meet here every week and we pray for you. We pray for our church. It means something that people are meeting like that and praying. It's not just those guys. It's I know women meet here too and do the same thing. And I, I get texts during the week and just say, how can we pray for you? You know, what, what's going on? What? And to me, that kind of thing going on in this culture is the reason why God continues to work at CCC. I think our, our prayer is more of him, less of me. God, we depend upon you. We look to you. You know, have freedom here. We realize it's not about us, it's about him. We're setting ourselves aside. We're begging him desperately to work in this place. So I'm thankful for those kind of prayers. And I think a lot of that was what was going on with Paul. Lord, use Paul mightily. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus and we greeted the brothers and stayed with him for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters. In some uh, texts, it reads, four virgin daughters who prophesied. So two more cities are visited. He ends up at Caesarea. Paul comes to the house of Philip. Now, we've heard of Philip before. It's in chapter 6 where they chose several men to basically act like deacons to help out the elders because of the influx of people in the church. They couldn't handle all the physical needs, particularly handling the widows and the, the physical needs and feeding, clothing, and whatever else that they needed. So the elders said, leave us to pray Leave us to fast, leave us to teach. Let these guys take it. We give them the responsibility to help for these other needs. And Philip was a part of that original group. He was also spoken about in Acts 8, where he was preaching in Samaria and performing signs. And then Philip is the one who God used to also lead the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. The point is, Philip has had an extensive life of ministry. And so, apparently, it rubbed off on his kids. And Acts 21 is like 20 years after Acts 6 and 7 and 8. So, he shows hospitality to Paul, and it says he has four unmarried or virgin daughters who prophesy. Now, the word connotes that these are young, probably teenagers, and we're given a unique look here into a family that, well, you talk about spirit-led, spirit-filled, being used by God, that was Philip and his family. And the verb tense indicates that his daughters were prophesying regularly. If anything, this is an answer to the prophecy given in Acts 2. 
where it says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Well, if you see this statement through first century and with the Jews and the Gentiles and how God was moving, we realize that God was saying, all right, it's not just through a certain set of people now, but it's going to be through all people that I share the spirit. You don't have to be just a Jew. Sons, daughters, not just religious leaders, sons, daughters, young men, older men, young women, older women, without distinction of sex or age, the spirit of God is going to be poured out. So God was intervening and conveying his truth. And remember, it's been about 400 years between the end of the Old Testament to the start of the new, about 400 years where God was not speaking to his people in terms of revelation. And now, here in Acts, it's like a tidal wave. God is speaking to his church through his son, through the apostles and the writing of scripture. Hebrews 1 and 2 confirms this when it says, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Perhaps the clearest indication of this outpouring was how it was taking place. Not through the religious elite, not just through the educated, not just through, you know, the blue bloods, not just through priests or pastors, but on all people. The point of the Joel passage is that not just some, but all of God's people will have the spirit that know Christ. And they will be equipped for service with various gifts. And that includes young girls, not holders in that day of the religious offices, are given gifts by God to use in the propagation of the gospel and in the equipping of the saints. Everyone who knows Christ. Turn to the person next to you and say, God has gifted you and wants to use you. That is true of every believer in Jesus Christ. And say it to yourself, God has gifted me. Say it. God has gifted me. Say, God wants to use me. God wants to use me. Is his spirit alive today? Is he gifting his people? Yes. He wants to use you. So be encouraged, everyone. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, coming to us. He took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. 
Now, it's not just a coincidence that Agabus was the one in Acts 11 who predicted that there would be a great famine. And then Agabus is the one here in Acts 21 that warns Paul that by delivering this money to the believers in Jerusalem to help with this famine effort, that would mean certain persecution for him. I mean, this is a pretty concrete illustration. He takes the belt and ties it around his feet and hands and tells Paul, this is what is going to happen to you when you go to Jerusalem. That's what they're going to do to you. Now, Agabus here, he did not say specifically that the Spirit said for Paul not to go. He just tells Paul that he would be persecuted. But again, they interpreted that information, all the believers there, it said, we, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, I don't think the people here were being malicious or anything like that. They loved Paul, obviously. They just didn't want to see him hurt. But it's a fact that sometimes family and friends may try to dissuade us from doing God's will. Right? It doesn't mean that they're being mean-spirited. It doesn't mean they don't love us. They just are not hearing what we're hearing from God. Right? Now, this is not, you know, dealing with a passage of Scripture that you read and you understand and interpret. This is with, you know, where I should go. So it was something kind of, you could call it extra-biblical. You might often see this happen with, for instance, if you were to marry somebody your parents don't approve of. You can get into stuff like this. Well, what should I do? But the point here is that you're being dissuaded from following what you feel like God is telling you to do. You know, I've talked to many missionaries over the years who tell of family members who are Christians, who seek to influence them from going you know, out of the country to a faraway land that's potentially dangerous. It's very understandable. I mean, even those who love us can be a hindrance to us doing what God has called us to do. It reminds me of the words of Jesus when he said this, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division, for from now on in one house, there'll be five divided, three against two, two against three. Uh, they will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus is not telling us to be contrary here. He's not telling us to be obstinate, but rather that when you honor God, there may be family members that do not understand and may not be for every move you do. I could give you many stories from my family and Janet's family, who in speaking into our lives, tried to tell us not to do some of the things that, that we did. You know, you just have to follow what the Lord is saying to you. And sometimes that means losing, at least temporarily, the affection of your family. And for some, that means even permanently. It's hard. It can be very difficult. But it's a genuine reality for some. Paul acknowledges that they're making this difficult for him, more difficult than it needs to be. 
because they did not understand his resolve to be willing to go to the point of death. Paul, his response is very picturesque in the Greek. It actually can read, why are you pounding away at my heart? The verb that he uses there is also used for washing clothes when they would pound them with rocks, you know, in order to clean them. So he's saying, you know, these emotional appeals that you are making are not helping me. God may be leading others differently than how we see a situation, and we have to give them freedom to choose. Again, this is not about a biblical position. You know, Paul is not coming out against a clear direction in the Bible or anything like that, but it's just how God is leading them. And we as believers are not to use emotional blackmail or or appeals that serve to manipulate and control or try to control other people. We're not to blow up. We're not to exaggerate. We don't attack or accuse the person. Well, you don't love me. You don't care for me because you won't listen, blah, 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 blah. And those are all forms of manipulation. And what, what it does is says more about us when we go that route that we do not trust God to work in their life just as much as he works in ours. So we're, I think we're to respond with humility toward one another and allow God's spirit to move freely in others for his own purposes. Let us notice that these believers recognized what they were doing finally and said, we ceased. And said, let the will of the Lord be done. You know, maybe some of us need to say, what do I need to cease doing by trying to manipulate or control? I need to maybe say, I'm ceasing. (laughs) I'm no longer gonna try to you know, make this person do something I want them to do. They recognized the Lord's will was different than what their affections or Again, I'm not saying they were bad people. They loved Paul, but they made it more difficult for him to do what God was telling him to do. God's will included persecution and hardship for Paul. God had given Paul multiple warnings about what was ahead. There's going to be persecution. Paul, this is a part of the yoke that God will have you wear, but you'll do this in the power of Christ. This was not a mistake by God. This is not because Paul lacked faith. It was a part of God's plan. These warnings that God provided there were to help Paul anticipate and to prepare for the trials that were ahead. See, God did not tell Paul, hey, I'm going to have you go down a little 10-minute walk that you're going to enjoy. I hope you like the scenery. No. He's saying, you are going to go on a mountainous climb, and you're going to need a backpack and a lot of food, prepare yourself. When we think that God has somehow obligated to us that we're all to be in good health, that we're all to have wealth, 
where I ought to forego trials because I named the name of Christ. We don't prepare people. We cripple them with that kind of language and those kinds of thoughts. And we, we communicate that endurance and faithfulness, those aren't the targets. Escaping from certain circumstances, that's the target. That's what God owes me. And I think in doing that, we miss the work of God in people who are enduring, going through terrible bouts with, let's say, sickness and other trials, and we gloss over how, how they're, yeah, they're in agony, but they're continuing to honor God, pray, seek God. That is such a beautiful thing. They're not just seeking to escape. And so instead of praising God for his work in people like that, we're saying, you know what? God's yoke on that person is unnecessary. Who gave us that right? I think we should be wary of degrading the very words of Jesus and the sentiments of these people around Paul and Paul himself in, when they say, thy will be done, right? Now, you know, I, I've heard this happen. I've heard it said, said to me many times, well, you didn't pray emphatically that this person should be healed. You know, you prayed, thy will be done. You don't have enough faith. Let me ask you this. Would Jesus have expressed more faith by slaying all his captors or by drinking the cup in the garden? Now listen, I am thankful for those who pray in faith for healing or provision. Please don't hear me say, don't do that. I'm not saying that at all. But let us not be duped to think it's a lesser choice or lesser faith to praise God and pursue him in times of sickness or want. It's a former elder in our church that no longer lives here, and his wife recently passed away from MS. She said last year, and I quote, when times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God made them both. Ecclesiastes 7, end quote. Is she a disappointment to God? <laughs> I sure don't think so. I think she's being richly rewarded in her heavenly home for that kind of faithfulness. I commend that kind of faithfulness, and I commend the faith that finds healing. Both are needed, both can be pursued, both can be in the will of God. I don't have an omniscience to know what God will do in either case, but I do know this, God is in control. And he's not gonna say, oh shoot, I let that one get away from me, I am so sorry you're sick. All right, just say the right words and I'll take it away. It's not abracadabra. God is the sovereign God of the universe. He knows what he's doing. I'm willing to live in light of that and just continue to obey his word, to seek him with all my heart. Let's pray.